Welcome to another episode of Strange Sound. This is Joe. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate having you along on this strange journey we call Strange Sound. Or here at Strange Sound, it's just a journey. It's not so strange because, well, our name is predicated with the word strange. So everything strange is just normal around here. We call it normal. Anyway, here we are. Another week of COVID-19 home confinement, so to speak, sort of keeping to ourselves still as everyone else is. Rough times, rough times around um, upstate New York and elsewhere, a lot of people out of work. This is uh, is pretty terrifying. From what I can see, Various estimates have us somewhere between 15 and 19% unemployment. That's gobsmacking. That's remarkable and terrifying. Not a good thing. These are Great Depression level um, unemployment figures and they are affecting directly people um, on the bottom of the income ladder, um, people whose jobs do not translate to work from home as easily as other people's jobs, like, for instance, my job, translates very easily to working from home. Most people do not have this capability. And because our economy is essentially, um, there are so many low-level jobs and gig economy jobs in this economy, um, those are the people who are being affected most severely. And this is this is a terrible time for them. So once again, as I have in previous episodes, I want to encourage people to um, think of those who are out of work, find ways, and there are many, I'm sure, find ways of helping folks that are out of work that are on the edge right now, I just encourage you to do whatever you can to help. Because these are rough times. 15% unemployment is just astounding, astonishing. Never thought we'd see it in our in our lifetimes. In, and even when we were talking about an economy that had something close to full employment just a few months ago, the degree to which people were on the edge, um, even at that point, given the way we calculate who's employed, who's not employed, who's, you know, it doesn't really take into consideration people's economic security, whether or not they are nominally employed. 
And a lot of people in this economy were economically insecure even before the COVID crisis. So these people uh, are thrown out in the middle of the street. Now, they, some of them may be getting unemployment. Um, that's easier in some states than in others. And there is a bit of a delay even in states like New York. Uh, so we have to keep these folks in mind. A lot of people suffering because of the virus. Um, COVID-19 has killed more than 90,000 people as of this recording. Um, and it's probably quite a bit higher than that. Um, a lot of the victims in nursing homes, um, a lot of victims in prison, um, clusters around uh, meatpacking plants and Employers that sort of put people in close proximity to one another. That was the case here in upstate New York. There was a um, greenhouse owned by a large company in uh, Madison County, I believe. And something like 140 employees tested positive for COVID-19. The place employed 300 people. And as of... About a week ago, the testing showed that, you know, more than half of them or up to half of them had um, tested positive for COVID-19, which is just, you know, amazing. Um, But again, this is, (laughs) these are laborers who were brought in from the outside. They're migrant workers. Um housed in a dormitory, um, that sort of thing. And, um, they've been putting them up in hotels and motels and things like that. Um, since discovering that there is this cluster of cases. So, uh, it's, again, these are people who don't have a lot of, a lot of leeway, you know, they don't have a lot of running room between them and the economic abyss. So, We have to keep these people in mind. So uh, this is episode 12 of Strange Sound. And what I wanted to talk about today a little bit is some questions surrounding foreign policy and where we're going in the current presidential election, what, uh, what the implications are for... American foreign policy moving forward, at least as it um, as it bears on the presidential race, um, as the presidential race will decide, you know, what direction we're going in and how how dramatically different we can expect it to be under under say a Biden administration as opposed to a Trump administration. Well, uh, I have to say I was particularly interested in what Biden's campaign had to say about what his foreign policy would look like. Um, I've heard little rumblings of it here and there. Obviously, we heard what he had to say in the various debates, the Democratic primary debates. Not that much, Um, but nothing unexpected. I was a little bit alarmed by his uh, recent, I think it's a web ad, 
um, that's taking aim at Trump on COVID-19, and rightfully so. But it does seem to put the crosshairs on China to a great degree. And that makes me a little bit nervous. Um, A lot of the ad that I saw, a lot of the time is spent talking about how cozy Trump was with the Chinese leader and China more generally, Um, which sounds to me like trying to leverage this sort of anti-China sentiment that I, I'm not sure who they're talking to here. So from what I understand of the Biden campaign, part of their strategy is to get at they're targeting specific groups of voters that may have broken for Trump in 2016 and that these are um, narrowly defined groups of probably white working class men I don't know the exact demographics of, of who they're targeting, but uh, whoever it was that broke for Trump, perhaps they feel this scaremongering about China, this targeting um, of China as being, you know, um, some kind of malevolent force in the world that Trump has given into or that Trump has coddled too much, um, that they think that this is a winner for them, that maybe they can sort of peel a few of those folks away by being, by sowing doubt in, you know, Trump as someone who's uh, capitulating to the Chinese. It's China! Anyway, China has a lot of problems, no question. I'm not a big fan of scaremongering over China. Um, I'm not going to go into the conspiracy theories about China, like developing COVID-19 and spreading it around or, you know, all, all the stuff about, you know, China not responding quickly enough. It's probably true. But, of course, we didn't respond quickly enough either, and that's definitely true. And the notion that anyone owns a virus or a pandemic in this day and age, in this globalized world we have, where people are traveling all over the place, even when they shut down travel from China, there were thousands of people coming in from China and from other parts of the world, people who had gone to Europe and then come here. That's where a lot of the infections and the the contagion in the New York area came from was people from Europe. So what are you going to do, right? People travel all over the world. They're, they're, they're flying all over the world. It, that's the way our world is structured. So you can play the blame game with China, but it it's totally meaningless. And the idea that the Biden campaign would hop on to this sort of anti-China rhetoric is really disgusting. Now, I'm not trying to say that that's their foreign policy, that's at the core of their foreign policy. I certainly hope not. It's hard to say because it does seem like they're, like I said, they're targeting this narrow group of of white working-class voters that broke for Trump. 
And it almost seems like they're piggybacking on some of the sort of never Trump Republicans that have invested a lot of time and resources into um, criticizing Trump and doing ads against him, that sort of thing. That's worrisome to me because I know that the mainstream Republican Party has kind of a love-hate relationship with China and its various incarnations, and I've said this many times, every time the, the Republicans come back to the presidency, they're worse than they were before. So you had the George H.W. Bush administration that was relatively congenial to China, just as the uh, sort of late Reagan administration was. Um, it was a carryover of that, the Brent Scowcroft school um all those folks, when the Republicans came back under H.W. Bush's son, W., um, people don't really talk about this very much, but just prior to September 11th, 2001, in the months prior to that, there was a confrontation with China. And it was over a surveillance aircraft of ours, that got diverted by Chinese um, fighter pilots, I believe. They um, escorted it back and had to land. And there was a confrontation. And for a couple of days, it really felt like, oh my God, what the hell is going to happen here? It just felt like we were on the verge of a war with China. And it was really unnerving. For a few days, and then it sort of, you know, simmered down. Um, and then nine eleven happened, <laughs> and the and the whole, you know, the whole game changed, as everyone knows. But the group that was empowered um, in the W. Bush White House, the neocon group. And some of the paleocons like um, Rumsfeld and Cheney, they had a kind of an attitude about China that probably draws on their experience um, early on, you know, back in the day, uh, back during the Nixon administration, which is, you know, I mean, Nixon opened the door to China, right? But they still had this kind of like view of it. So I don't know what the... I don't know what the genesis of their hostility is, but they've they've had that hostility. They carried it through the Carter, not the Carter administration, the Clinton administration, particularly with regard to campaign finance issues. The idea that uh, you know the Chinese were sort of bribing their way into more favorable policies um, by you know sluicing campaign funds into. Or, or, you know, it threw a back door into the White House. Regardless of what you think of that, uh, there's there's always been a certain strain of China bashing in the Republican Party. And that's that's represented in the Trump administration as well. Though I have to say, Trump personalizes um, his relationship with foreign leaders and foreign governments to a great degree. I've talked about this in previous uh, episodes of the podcast before. 
this is nothing that, you know, it's nothing that I'm coming up with myself. It's obvious. Anyone can see it. He does it all the time. And a lot of times his foreign policy establishment is not on the same track as he is. So you have um, him striking up a relationship with with Xi in, uh, in China, with the leader of China. And that's, you know, it, it, he affects to have a personal relationship with, with Chairman Xi. And, and that's, that may well be true. He may think that it's better than it actually is. Um, but our sort of national policy towards them is still kind of confrontational. Um, on again, off again. And he drives that a little bit. He, he sort of bashes them when he thinks it's politically in his interests. And he, he's, he sort of draws them closer when he feels it's politically in his interests. Right now, he's more on the sort of bashing side of that. And he finds sympathetic ears within um, the Republican Party. Obviously, they have mixed feelings about China. And there's a deep foreign policy establishment um, suspicion of China. Not so much suspicion, but just... um, Nervousness about China, particularly with regard to its integration with um, economies both east and west through its Belt and Road Initiative, that is really a nightmare scenario for American planners, in a sense. Um, I've said before about, like, particularly in the context of Korea, you know, if there wasn't a conflict between. North and South Korea, we would have to invent one uh, because that is really, that's the predicate for like a massive American military presence there and for, you know, a a need for our presence there. Um, I think I've gone into this a bit in previous episodes or certainly in other contexts, maybe on my blog. But, you know, to... Not to get too far into that issue, um, as far as the Biden campaign is concerned, how um, how would Biden differ from Trump from a foreign policy standpoint? With regard to China, it doesn't look all that good um, just based on what information there is. And if you go to Joe Biden's website, uh, I think you'll be... Um, kind of overwhelmed by how little information there is about foreign policy there. Um, If you visit JoeBiden.com, I believe it's JoeBiden.com, right? Um, If you can get through all the paywalls, (laughs) the first thing you're going to be hit with is um, solicitations to give money and volunteer and all this stuff. Then you're going to see Joe's Vision for America. So if you go to Joe's Vision for America under the rubric of bold ideas. Um, Look for foreign policy under here. And you will be spending some time looking at the little boxes. There's like three columns of little gray boxes with headlines in them. Um, There's Joe's leadership in times of crisis, COVID-19, 
Joe Biden's proposal to set up support for deserving small businesses, Biden's four-point plan for our essential workers, the Biden plan for combating coronavirus COVID-19. There there we go again. Um, The Biden plan to scale up employment insurance by reforming short-time compensation programs. Okay, well, that's a mouthful. You will search in vain for concrete foreign policy proposals. The only thing that they have in here is the Biden plan for Central America. And the reason why he has a Biden plan for Central America is, well, it's really kind of part and parcel of what the next box is, which is the Biden plan for immigration. So if you look through the Biden plan for Central America, what you're seeing is an aid package, right? Um, Mostly talking about the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, the Northern Triangle countries, as they put it. And this is a very general, kind of longish statement. Um, the way Joe Biden's uh, <laughs> quoted is putting it here is the challenges ahead are formidable, but if the political will exists, there is no reason Central America cannot become the next great success story of the Western Hemisphere. So we're going to bring those poor people along. Um, <laughs> you know, it, and it it sets this bogus historical context. You know, we have a strong and abiding friendship with Central America. We're bound together not just by proximity, but by our shared history and values. Yeah, we have a shared history. Um, And Biden should know about it a bit, right? Um, I, I believe he did oppose Contra aid in the 1980s, if I remember correctly. But he's since sort of backed away from it a bit in his criticism of... Uh, of Bernie Sanders. Um, Nevertheless, not to get too much into the details of this plan here, such as it is, um, probably the largest component of it is aid, uh, international development through the World Bank um, (laughs) and other international agencies, essentially opening these economies to business a bit more as if they could be any more prone to corporate penetration than they are right now, considering that's what we essentially fought the Central American wars in the 1980s and prior um, to establish, uh, to make these countries um, amenable, you know, make sure that they have a government that was completely amenable to foreign investment. Um, So apparently even more foreign investment, um, some aid, um, initiatives to fight corruption, whatever that means. Uh, If it's anything like Lava Jato in Brazil, not such a good thing. And I'm not sure, I mean, there's really nothing in there about about Honduras, um, which saw a coup during the Obama administration very early on um, that they were supportive of. 
Um, no real mention of that. Uh, no mention of Juan or Orlando Hernandez. Um, his his corrupt administration, um, which the United States has supported. So again, we don't have a clear idea of what it is they advocate. They're, they're talking about a greater level of engagement with these, with these countries, with these Northern Triangle countries in Central America. But that's it. There is no other foreign policy on this website. Nothing. So what is their plan? How do they differentiate themselves um, from the Trump administration on foreign policy? Um, I mean, there's nothing here about Afghanistan, right? There's nothing here about our, our current deployments in, in Iraq and in Syria. Uh, there's nothing here about North Korea or the Korean Peninsula more generally. Though I did hear him in a recent interview talking about, you know, not wanting to coddle dictators like like uh, Trump is fond of doing. Um, that's a little worrisome in that it makes me think that perhaps he will back away from whatever tepid support the Trump administration has offered um, South Korea, Moon Jae-in's, um, President Moon Jae-in's efforts to um, reconcile with the North, which have been pretty impressive. Um, the Trump administration, as I've mentioned in previous po- podcasts, has you know taken a personalized approach to this. They haven't really followed through with any practical foreign policy efforts to facilitate this sort of diffusing of the live bomb that is the Korean Peninsula. Um, Will Joe Biden do something different? There's nothing about this. It's a blank slate. Will he do something different about Iraq? About Syria? About Afghanistan? Trump has talked about wanting to get out of Afghanistan. Does Biden agree with that? I mean, we can look to his public statements, but why isn't there anything on his website about this? I realize that they want to have a domestic focus. I mean, obviously that's the case. If we're looking at, you know, Joe's vision, it's pretty much all about domestic issues. And domestic issues are important. But... (laughs) Look, uh, Joe Biden has a long history in the Senate um, of involvement in foreign policy uh, issues, uh, particularly the Iraq adventure. So, you know, what is his foreign policy with regard to Iran? Are we going to confront Iran? Or are we going to return to the um, Iran deal? Are we going to sign back on to that? Now, I've, I've heard some indication that that may be the case or some modified version of that. I know that he's talked about re-entering the Paris Accords on climate change. 
Is that going to happen? I don't know. But this is a blank slate. We need to know more. And I would encourage anyone, you know, who's within shouting distance of the Biden campaign to ask them to be a little bit more specific with regard to what he's going to do about these, you know, pressing issues. Biden doesn't have a very good history on foreign policy. Uh, it's not hanging around his neck as heavily as it did with with Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, we'll see how much, how different it is um, this fall when um, the Trump campaign is really sort of wailing away at uh, Biden, trying to make him seem, well, basically like Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, I think that's an uphill battle, but still, he's got a lot of baggage on foreign policy. And I don't see any effort here to address that whatsoever. I mean, the Iraq debacle is more than just a vote. It has to do with hearings in the Foreign Relations Committee, of which he was the chair, in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. Let's go back and look at the record. You know, what is our what is our policy with regard to ongoing conflicts that we've been involved in for many years? And in some cases, um, in, like in the case of Afghanistan, almost 20 years. What are we going to do about that? I don't have a lot to offer on this, um, but that's, <laughs> I guess... <laughs> I guess my position on this right now is let's challenge the Biden campaign to tell us what their plans are for foreign policy. I want to hear what they have to say about it. Seeing as they're no longer, you know, having to debate or compete for the nomination anymore, I want to hear substantively what they have planned aside from this semi bogus plan for Central America, which is really just a plan for three states in Central America, and it is tied to their immigration policy, um, transparently. In any case, that's all I've got to say about it. I'd like to hear what you have to say. As always, you're welcome to... Leave a comment um, at anchor.fm slash strange sound. There's the ability to leave a comment, um, an audio comment. I will be glad to play it on the air. Uh, either contact me through social media. You can find me um, at strange sound pod on Twitter. Um, you can also find strange sound on Facebook. The links to the um, to the social media platforms um, are available at anchor.fm slash strange sound. Uh, you can also find the link to our anchor.fm uh, landing page um, on big-green.net. So I invite you to come by. I invite you to reach out and contact us. Please share the show with other people. Um, please 
like the show. Um, please encourage others to listen, to comment, to push back. I want to hear from you. I want to make this conversation. It would be really great to hear what you have to say. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking to you next time. Take care out there.